Please turn with me now to the New Testament and to Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there. And say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. And I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning, as you can perhaps see, we're in this middle portion of Luke 10 from verses 5 to 16. And this is Christ sending out of the 70 to go preach to these cities where he himself was about to go to. And last time we focused on this great command that he gave, that we ought to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out laborers to go work in that harvest that is so great But today I want to focus on the underlying reason, the great logic for why he is doing what he is doing and the thing that is driving everything else. It's right in the middle of the section in verse 12 he says, But I say to you it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. He does not explain much in this. He does not give a long explanation of what that day is. But he assumes we know what he's talking about. And there's apparently some day coming that is the point of all these things, that makes sense of it all, that is what is driving all of it. It is there like some enormous gravitational force pulling all towards it, driving all towards it, and which in the light of everything makes sense. And that day is the day of judgment. That day looms in the foreground of this passage it looms in the foreground of Christ's own thought as he is doing these things and it should and must loom large in our horizons all of you who are listening to me it must loom large that day he is speaking of the day even this sense in which he speaks of it in such a 
way in which he, he knows you're all thinking of it. He assumes that his audience knows about it. He assumes that it is so important that every sacrifice, every choice is to be known, is to be made sense in light of it. In that day, that is the name of our sermon this morning. And there are four points. We offer peace to households. Secondly, we offer the kingdom to cities. Third, we stand in place of Christ. And fourth, as that theme is brought to bear, for judgment is coming. We offer peace to households. We offer the kingdom to cities. We stand in the place of Christ. Why? For judgment is coming. First, we offer peace to households. Verse 5, it says, For whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And I suppose the most basic point is, and something I don't know if I previously really considered, is that we have a peace to offer to others. It would be one thing for us to just offer as an offhanded blessing, you know, peace to this house, as a polite but empty blessing. As a gesture, but that is not what is being said here. It is something far more substantial than that. It is something that can be bestowed. It is something that can be received, or else it is something that returns. It is something far more substantial, because we're not speaking of a a, a, an, a mindless gesture. We are speaking of something that is very deep and fundamentally important, and that is that there is warfare between man and God. There is warfare. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, there is war between fallen men and their God. But God has made a way of peace in Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that's the warfare, that's what that word means, the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. He came and he preached peace. He said peace to this house. And some listened and some received that peace. And some did not. Some rejected it. And we offer that peace in his name because that is what the gospel is. It is the gospel of peace. Romans 10, again to read another extremely important section. Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach in us their sin? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's the thing. That's the, the thing that you're offering, the thing that all of God's people, and they come, they offer to the household of which they are in contact, they offer peace. They have the gospel of peace. But then those who, who hear it, they can either accept it or reject it. The basis on whether they accept it or reject it is whether or not they're a son of peace. Because in verse 6 it says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. 
And we're reminded again of this deepest reality about ourselves, whether we are once born children of the devil or whether we are twice born children of God. You know, there are sons of Belial, it says in the Old Testament. Those of you who have the authorized version, that that wording is there, sons of Belial. Deuteronomy 13.13, sons of Belial have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city. It's, It's translated in different ways in many other versions, but that's what it says, sons of Belial. And they say, let us go and serve other gods which you've not known. Why are they doing it? Because they're sons of Belial. That's what they do. You are, you are children of your father the devil and he is a liar and a murderer. And that's the sort of thing that sons of Belial do. In 1 Samuel 2, 12, one of the saddest statements, particularly as a father reading it. Now the sons of Eli, you read, you read it again in most versions, all it says the sons of Eli were corrupt. But if you were to read it in Hebrew, it's a little bit more stark than that. The sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they did not know the Lord. That's what defines what you are. If you don't know the Lord, you're a son of Belial, a son of Satan. And you follow in his ways, and you will share his fate. But then there are sons of the living God. These are sons of peace. Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are the sons of peace. There may well be those who are sons of peace who already know that, who already recognize it, but it may be that it is precisely in in someone being sent, a preacher being sent, a Christian being sent, that it is at, at that moment that God is revealing that son of peace, that son of God, bringing him to faith, bringing him to regeneration in order that he might hear and believe the gospel of peace. And these are the sons of peace. Now notice this offer of peace goes to households, which is an intriguing thing. A reminder that God actually deals primarily with us in terms of family relationships governed by covenants. And the question is, how so? How is that fair? How does that work? Because we're so used to dealing with people only as individuals. Well, that may be our custom at this time, but it has not been the way of the world throughout all of its ages. And it's not the way that God entirely deals with us. I don't mean to say that it's only by families or only as individuals. I mean to say it's a mixture of both of those things. But I want us to see that in in the first instance... The first way that he deals with us is by family relationships. And the way it works in this case, if we offer the gospel of peace to a family, to its head, to its father, the one who's in authority, and he accepts that, what's going to happen to that that family? It doesn't guarantee that each and every one of them will become believers, but the trajectory for that household is going to be fundamentally altered. He's going to be praying for his family. He's going to be as much as possible bringing his children before the means of grace. He's going to be bringing them to church in order that they might hear this gospel and be saved. He's going to be teaching them. He's going to be bringing that word of God before them in family worship, the catechism and so forth. And he'll be enjoying, he'll he'll be prevailing upon them to receive this gospel of peace. But what if he rejects it? What happens then? None of those things are going to happen. He's not going to be bringing them to church. He's not going to be bringing them before the, the means of grace. He's not going to be teaching them. He's not going to be praying for them. He's not going to be using his rightful authority to persuade them, to, to bring them to the claims of the gospel. All that is out the window. And they're just as bad off as anyone in the world who's never heard these things at all. You see how that works? 
So crucial importance. And God, therefore, very often, I would suppose that the great majority of those who are saved in the history of the world, it has happened because of this family relationship. Praise God, that's not the only way it happens, because some of us would not be here if that was the case. But that is, first and foremost, the way he works. And therefore, we offer this gospel of peace to households. Secondly, we offer the kingdom to cities. It goes on to say in verse 9, And heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. Now, I would say this. There is a kingdom on offer here. That yes, it is Christ's kingdom. But he offers it to us, you see. That's the amazing thing. We don't say that we take over. We're not usurping a kingdom that does not belong to us. The amazing thing is that Christ, who owns this kingdom, offers it to us. Revelation 5.10. He's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Or far more close at hand, a couple more chapters in Luke. Luke 12.32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So amazing, so generous, so wonderful. It is beyond me how people ever imagined that God is tight-fisted, a miser. It's not like that at all. He's generously offering you the kingdom. And I would just say, what have men done in history to secure a kingdom? What have they done? Great literature has been written on men of ambition who seek a kingdom in all that they're willing to do. The good ones who endure every hardship, every opposition, and they prevail through it to receive that kingdom. And bad ones, wicked ones who will lie and murder even their own family and friends to get these things. Maybe in Shakespeare. Because the kingdom's on offer. And they will do what it takes to receive it. This is the sort of thing that we are offering. This is the sort of thing that is on offer to cities where the Christian gospel is going. Now it is a wonderful offer of a kingdom, but it is a fleeting opportunity. This is very clear in the way this is phrased, that when he says the kingdom has come near, it's, it's drawn near, it is there, it is a fleeting opportunity, it's passing by. And the implication is there that it, won't all, it hasn't always been near at hand, it is now, it hasn't always been in the past. The way of getting into this kingdom or gaining this kingdom has not always been known in every place and every time. The opportunity has not always been present. And the implication is that this opportunity of getting into the kingdom, of being on the right side of the kingdom that is coming, it will not always be there. It is a fleeting opportunity. We offer this fleeting opportunity of a kingdom. And it is a double-edged opportunity. Just to make clear what I've already said It is a double-edged opportunity. Whatever, verse 10, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. Do you understand that the offer of the gospel which you are receiving, it is not like something you get through the letterbox that is sent out to everyone in the community at, at cheap rates, and there it is, and it's 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 cheap little piece of paper, and you put it immediately in the bin, and you know what happens when you do that? You're not afraid to put it in the bin, are you? Because nothing's going to happen to you if you just put it in the bin. Brothers and sisters, that's not the, the case with the gospel. 
You must understand. You can put it in the bin if you want. But something will happen to you. That's why these people are shaking off their clothing from your city. Because if when the judgment comes against you, and you have not heard and you have not received this, they want you to understand that your blood is upon your own head. You do not casually dismiss this invitation. It is one that carries great weight, and you will be held accountable if you do not receive it. We offer peace to households. We offer the kingdom to cities. And thirdly, we stand in the place of Christ. Verse 16, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now we have seen this principle before, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it at all. I just want to remind you that God in his wisdom has decided that there's going to be something I call the transitive property. Rather than in, in, in some sort of arithmetic or mass, we're talking about a transitive property of being sent. That God himself sends the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of God. It makes perfect sense that he would send him in his name. And all that he says, God says. All the business that Christ transacts, God transacts. And therefore, whatever relationship you have to Christ, one who either receives him or rejects him, that is your relationship to the living triune God. But he then moves that transitive principle to the ones who go in his name, to his messengers, to his church. And your relationship to them, your relationship to the church, your relationship to the gospel that that church preaches, it is your relationship to God. If you receive it, then you have received Christ. But if you reject it, you have rejected Christ. And therefore, we must understand that we stand in the place of Christ. And those who hear this word, who are not in the church, you must understand that I preach to you in the name of Christ. I do not stand on my own. Again, if I were here in my own name, you could receive or reject my word and nothing would happen. It's of, of no, no consequence. But I speak to you in the name of the living God. Know that. Now, what I, I say, I, as I say, I'm not spending much time on this. I just want you to know that, that, that the church, those who are sent as messengers of the church, we stand in the place of Christ, and therefore that is how it is that kingdoms, that, that, that cities can hear about the kingdom and how it is that households can hear about this gospel of peace. It is because of that. But fourthly, judgment is coming. Verse 12, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, as I say, these words, in that day, have come in without any explanation. That's, in fact, what gives so much weight to them. He clearly attaches the greatest weight to that word to, and the significance of what it means to the reality of this coming day of judgment. But it's all the more because he doesn't need to say any, any more explanation about it. You know... People wonder what it is that, that uh, the content of what's called natural revelation. What I mean is to say that people talk about, um, well, what about the, those in Bongo Bongo land that have never heard the gospel? How is it fair that they'll ever be held accountable? The answer is that they have some basic things written in their own nature and written in the heavens above and in the, the world around them as God has created it, that they should know basic things. The existence of God, the moral law, and that there is a coming day of judgment. That's what Romans 1 makes very clear. 
Those things are already known. And so far less than, it, it, he doesn't, you could say that much. You could assume that much even to a non-Christian. You know there's a day ju- a judgment coming. And though he might have spent his whole life trying to tamp that down, trying to keep that quiet, that thing that is rising up in his mind that probably after this the day of judgment is coming, he will know what you're talking about. He may hate it, but he will know there is such a day of judgment. And far less in Christ have to explain that to Jews who know the Old Testament. They can be absolutely certain. And you who have grown up in some relationship to the Christian church, you certainly know that a day of judgment is coming. Well, for Christ, as he's saying these things, sometimes, of course, it still seems, even though we should know it, it still seems very far off into the future. Christ, it doesn't seem that way to him. It doesn't seem like it's unreal. It seems like it's so real. For him, it's as if that day is coming soon in in just a few weeks. And for him, it's as certain as if it were already happening before his eyes. And the reason is because he is the judge. And he, amazingly, has already seen the evidence in the case of what he's talking about, these particular cities. He has already seen the evidence against them. And he is, as it were, rendering a judgment in advance, the same judgment he will render when that day comes. He says, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. He goes on in verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Now this is a very interesting thing, something I've struggled a little bit with. We take the word of God seriously. We do not look at Christ's words and say that they were spoken in vain. The unmistakable, the the inescapable truth is that there will be judgment for whole cities. Now, let's just parse that out. When we say that there's going to be judgment for whole cities, does that mean, you know, is that going to happen to Gateshead? We'd better move out of Gateshead because things aren't looking very good for this city. I don't think it means that it has anything to do with believers because Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we know if we're talking about a judgment day that a condemnation, it couldn't possibly have anything to do with believers. So believers that are in that city that have been saved out of those exceptions that have believed doesn't apply. But it does apply to everyone else, those who didn't listen. And the principle is that that city, the people who are in that city, will be judged according to what they have received. According to how much knowledge they have. According to how much light they have. How much exposure to the gospel, to the truth. How clear has been these things to them. And therefore, of course, it doesn't mean that everyone who would ever live in the history of the world in that particular city is going to be held accountable in the same way. It's talking about those who lived in his own day, those who saw Christ, those who saw all of his mighty works. He says to them, you know, there are some cities in the past who have never seen anything like it, never heard the gospel like you heard it, never was it as clear to them, this gospel and this reality of the word of God. But if it had have been, they would have repented. But you, in your unrepentance, you, in your hardness of heart, have not listened to these things. And therefore, you will be held accountable for them. And all that, 
And all of that is predicated on the fact that judgment is going to differ according to the severity of the case. It says it will be, in verse 14, more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. I once came across an essay that was arguing against the whole idea of hell. The whole orthodox idea of hell, the supposition. And, and here's, here's a basis on it. He started with his supposition. And be careful, you, you people who make arguments against the word of God. Make sure you know what you're talking about when you make that argument, okay? Because here's the supposition. The supposition was this. Everyone receives the exact same judgment in hell. And therefore, it's not fair. Babies who, who die, who, who are not... Uh, we know that there are regenerate babies. We, John the Baptist was himself. But those who die apart from these things, they'll receive the same thing as Hitler. Therefore, hell cannot be true. Whoever said, whoever said that everyone receives the same judgment in hell, that is not the case. That is not the teaching of Scripture. That's not the teaching of the church. And in every place that we come across judgment, almost, it is very clear that some are going to get it worse than others. And the judgment here is very clear on that point. Very, very clear indeed. Uh, the ultimate example, of course, is Judas himself in, in Mark 14.21. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Wow. How about that? And what he's saying is that it's going to be far, far worse for that one than for others. Now, we have to be very clear about the unspeakable torments of hell to all who enter it. We say that in in great sadness. We say that in a spirit of warning so that people do not go there. And everyone who goes there will face the wrath of God forever. Everyone will be in darkness, the fires that are dark. Amazing. For all eternity. And all hope will be lost for them. But it will be so much worse for some. That they will be, as it were, in an utterly different category. And we can be certain of this, that God who is just, there will be strict judgment and justice done on. Just as it was on the cross. For some of us, Christ suffered more on the cross to bear the weight of our sins. To bear the penalty of our sins. And for some who die apart from Christ... They will certainly suffer more in eternity for it. Now as I say again. The basis for this differential judgment on this point. The basis for this differential judgment. Is how much they heard. Some heard more. Some saw more. And therefore when they reject the gospel. They will be judged accordingly. Well what is the easy and clear application of all that? It is very clear that we ought to repent. We ought to repent. That is a very clear, unmistakable application of these things. That the kingdom of God has come near to you. The only reasonable thing to do, brothers and sisters, is just repent. Turn away from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. How hard is it? You wonder at these people who had the living God coming in human flesh, sending out emissaries before them, first the twelve, then the seventy, then he himself came. And he didn't come apart from any proof. He came with every proof and every evidence of his divinity, every reality that he was the living God. And he spoke to them in very, very serious terms. And yet they didn't repent. 
It's the greatest mystery in the world. It is a mystery that God should ever come to speak in, even in warning. It is a mystery that he would ever speak in terms of, of offering peace to people. And the gospel of peace, they don't deserve it. None of us do. But it is perhaps the greatest mystery of all that those who are offered such things refuse it. And I say to you, repent. Do not think that this opportunity that I speak to you, it is of no consequence. Hell, and I say this with the greatest trembling, hell will be hotter for you because of the words of warning that I have just spoken to you. It will be hotter for you. And there will be great regret if you do not receive the opportunity as the kingdom has drawn near to you. I say to you, repent. Secondly, I say to fathers, lead your house into the kingdom of God. You fathers, who this, house, this word has come, this gospel of peace has come to you. This invitation has come, I say to you, lead your household into the kingdom of heaven. I do not mean to say that you can do it on your own. I do not mean to say that the things you do will be guaranteed to work in some sort of mechanical way. Because we know that God is sovereign. He saves some, he rejects others. He does not, he does not always save all the children of God's people. But you have been given the supreme privilege and honor to do what is in your hand to bring them into the kingdom. And you have those things. And my question is, are you doing them? Are you doing what is in your hand? I do not say to those of you who have done everything. You have done everything known. You have exercised your authority. You have held your authority over your children. And you have brought them to to morning and evening service from from their, their youngest days. You have brought them to prayer meetings. You have prayed long and hard over them. You have catechized them. You have brought the scriptures to them in evening worship every night. I do not mean to say that you should feel any guilt or, or problem. You have done all that you can. And the sovereign God decides who is to be saved. But if you have not done that, you ought to repent. You ought to change your ways. And 2015 ought to be the year that you determine above all things that you would bring your household into the kingdom of God. If they don't go, if they don't follow you, so be it. But as for you, you will serve the Lord and you will bring them no matter what. Lead your household into the kingdom. Thirdly, I ask a question, and it is a double-edged question. Will Gateshead be safe on that day? The day that I'm speaking of, the day that is coming, how safe is Gateshead on that day? And I mean that in two senses. Of course, there is a question of what have we done personally? What have we done as a church what, to lead them to safety? Have we done what is in our hand to do? That's, that's why we are always looking for new and different opportunities to bring this gospel out to them. We don't change the gospel We don't change the means or saved by the word of God, but we are looking for ways to get this gospel out to them. And we look for more to be done. And also I'd say in what category is it going to be in? Is it going to be one in in a situation which faithful churches have warned them clearly and consistently? Those who have borne testimony to the truth of what is said in their lives? 
We know, unfortunately, that it will be bad for those who do not repent in that day. Maybe that will be the case. I don't know. But we know it will be good for those who have heard the gospel. We know that there is no way for anyone to be saved except for us to do everything that they might hear the truth. And what Ezekiel 33.2 says is this. Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees a sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, any person, any one person from among them, and he is taken away in his own iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The question is, how safe is Gateshead going to be on that day in both of those senses? We pray that the Lord would enable this church to be a faithful watchman. Fourthly and finally, let's talk about New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you do them. Uh, it can be a mis- very misused tradition. Sometimes it becomes rote. Sometimes I do them and sometimes I don't. But I would just give you a couple things maybe to think about. These come from Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And all of them are in the light of eternity. All of them in the light, because that's the thing. This huge gravitational force, this thing that that lies in the horizon, the great day that is coming. Everything must be done in light of it. And he, he says things like this. Resolve, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected that it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Resolve that I will live so as as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world. Because, remember, it is not just differential punishments in hell. It is different rewards in heaven. And there will be greater degrees. Everyone will be happy, but some will be happier than others in heaven. To obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Result, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come to the future world. Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act and think as I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. And lastly, this one. I frequently hear, this is kind of a personal side, isn't it? I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Edwards himself did not live to old age. He died in later part of middle age. Died young. But he lived the way he wanted to live, were he to live his life over from an old age. He lived his life the way he would, looking back from eternity, the way that he wished that he would. And what I say is that live that way. Live in the light of eternity. 
Satan says that day is far away, but Jesus says it's come near. Satan says it's going to be a long, long time. Just put it out of your mind. But Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. The question is, who are we going to believe in this year to come? Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, you have told us some things which are, to say the least, very uncomfortable. We have been reminded that the kingdom of God is near us. And the opportunity to receive this kingdom, the opportunity to receive this peace, this gospel of peace, it is here, but it is fleeting. And one of the reasons, Lord, is because you, you know that you yourself will soon enough visit this city that you yourself will soon enough judge it. And Lord, how we pray that we who have heard these words would put our faith in Lord Jesus Christ. We would truly repent. We know, Lord, that it will be very bad for those who have heard such words and who refuse them and harden their hearts in eternity. Lord God, how we pray in your mercy, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'd bring each and every one of us to saving faith in Christ. And Lord, that we would resolve then truly to live this year and as long as we have left on this world, to live in light of eternity, to live as we would wish to have lived, looking back from millions and millions of years in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.